may be seated. Thank you all so much for being with us today. We're going to continue our time in worship as Allison comes to read the scripture this morning. Luke 20, 9 through 18. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and led it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Thank you for being with us today. Welcome to all of you to River Oaks. Welcome also to those of you joining us online. We are really, really grateful to have you with us this morning. Before we begin our message today, I'd like to direct your attention to the screen to take a quick look at what we call our vision frame. I think the best way to understand who we are as a church is by getting to understand what our vision frame represents. If you'll look at the left side of the frame, the values, I'd like to call your attention today to the third one down that says spirit-led. The word spirit there is a reference to the Holy Spirit. God, the Holy Spirit. And one of our values is to be a church that is guided, led by the Holy Spirit. The marks at the top of the frame are evidences of the values being lived out in our lives. And one of those marks is the Spirit's empowering. Our hope is that increasingly we as individuals and as a church will experience both the leading, the guidance of the Holy Spirit, and His empowering. And I think it's worth asking ourselves from time to time, am I experiencing His guidance and His empowering? This year, my hope is that the Lord will be so at work in our church as to raise the level of prayer, to increase prayer in our homes uh, for those who are married in our marriages, parents praying with kids, praying in our small groups, 
and uh, we've prepared a little daily weekday podcast to help with that, if that's of any help to you. But my hope is that as God raises the level of prayer, we will increasingly see his power at work in our church. It seems in Scripture like God has chosen to demonstrate his power in response to the prayers of his people. Next on the screen, you'll see the very last paragraph of our Vision 2025, and it reads this way. Every person at River Oaks recognizes that spiritual growth and effective outreach is only accomplished through God's enabling power. That is, through the power of the Holy Spirit. An increasing dependence upon the Holy Spirit through prayer characterizes the church and, call, and those who call River Oaks home. We express this dependence often by quoting a theme verse for the church. Unless the Lord builds a house, those who build it labor in vain. Notice the word dependence is there twice. Prayer flows from dependency an awareness of our need for God's presence and for God's power. Only God's power can bring about lasting fruit that glorifies and honors God. That's why Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. We need his presence. We need his power. Believing this, we pray. God's power flows from our dependency expressed in prayer. Would you join me as we pray about that this morning? Father, we come together again as your church today in the name of Jesus, and we ask for a greater work of your Holy Spirit among us than we've seen before. Lord, we ask that you would enable us to pray as we should. As the Apostle Paul said, we don't know how to pray as we ought, but you give us the help of the Holy Spirit. Lord, enable us to pray in our homes, in our groups in our church, and may we increasingly see your power at work among us. We ask this in the holy name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Today, we are in Luke chapter 20. In Luke 20, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. And there he would be arrested, he would be brutally beaten, flogged, scourged, and then crucified. And then he would be raised from the dead. But on his way into Jerusalem, we see this in Luke chapter 19, Jesus' entry to Jerusalem, people were, worship, were worshiping Christ. People were shouting out to Jesus as he came down the road riding on a donkey, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The account in Matthew tells us they were saying, save us, O Lord, Hosanna. Hosanna essentially means save, O Lord, save us, O Lord. This is the time we regard as Palm Sunday. People were putting branches in the road and throwing their cloaks on the road, and they were worshiping Jesus. All of this was the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. One of the things we'll see in this chapter today is that the events of Jesus' life, particularly as he got closer to the end, were directly linked to Old Testament prophecy. If you were with us in our church about three years ago, we did a year-long study called One Story where we went through all the books of the Bible. We called it One Story because the Bible is a unified whole, Old and New Testaments fitting together perfectly 
is the pieces of a beautifully designed puzzle. Some of you, I'll look around, are, are students. Some of you will go off to college. Some of you will take a course in religion. And unless you're at a, a very specifically Christian school, you're not likely to have professors teaching you that the Bible is the inspired Word of God. But one of the greatest evidences for the inspiration and the authority of the Scripture is the unity of the Bible. The way prophecies in the Old Testament written hundreds of years before were fulfilled in the New Testament. Prophecies, scriptures written by different people in different regions from different walks of life at different times, all fitting together perfectly as the pieces of a beautifully designed puzzle by God, the great orchestrator of this. When Jesus rode in Jerusalem on the donkey, he was fulfilling the words of Zechariah 9 and verse 9 that says, Behold, your king is coming to you righteous and having salvation. He is humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Well, the people cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They were fulfilling Psalm 118 which says, save us, that is, Hosanna, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So Jesus is fulfilling Scripture even during his entry into Jerusalem. The people are fulfilling Scripture as they worship him. Then as Jesus draws near and sees the city of Jerusalem, he begins to weep. He weeps over Jerusalem. When he drew near and saw the city, we read, he wept over it. We see here both the, the deity of Jesus, the fact that he was God, and his humanity. His deity in that he knew exactly what was going to happen to Jerusalem. He knew that in about 70 years, the city would be completely, entirely run over and destroyed by the Romans. And yet we see his humanity. We see Jesus weeping. One of the important things to know about Jesus Christ is that he was, he is both fully divine, fully God, and yet he came to this earth fully human. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, John wrote, but he went on to write, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. 100% God, 100% man. He weeps over Jerusalem. Next, Jesus goes into the temple, and this is where he cleanses the temple. He entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, it is written. And again, Jesus is linking with the Old Testament scriptures, which he believed to be the very word of God. <clears throat> it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, from the book of Isaiah, chapter 56, but you've made it a den of robbers from the book of Jeremiah, chapter 7. Jesus' holy wrath towards sin and the abuse of God's place of worship and the abuse of God's people is on display here. Then he begins to teach. And as he begins to teach, the Jewish leaders challenge his authority. The Jewish leaders were the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, the people who really knew the scriptures, these scriptures of the Old Testament. They were the ones who knew them. They were the ones who were supposed to be caring for the people, teaching the people the scripture, leading them in the worship of God. 
And as they heard Jesus teaching with great authority, they said, tell us by what authority you do these things. Who is it that gave you authority, such authority? Well, as often was the case, Jesus doesn't answer a question. He responds with another question. And so he says to them, I'll ask you a question. You, you tell me. Uh, the baptism of John, where was it from? Who gave him his authority? Was it from heaven or was it from men? And they said, hmm, if we say from heaven, he'll say, then why didn't you believe him? And if we say from men, well, they feared all the people standing around because they all thought John was a prophet. So they said, they, they said we don't know. He said, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And then he immediately began to tell a parable. It's the parable that Allison read for us just a moment ago. It is sometimes called the parable of the tenants. And it's a critically important parable because it looks back into Jewish history and brings people right up to the present and to the claim of who Christ will say that he is. The parable of the tenants, Jesus tells, uh, has several things that represent people, individuals, including God himself. And first thing we see in the parable of the tenants is that God is the owner of the vineyard. And he began to tell the people this parable, a man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long time. The Jewish leaders would have known that the vineyard was an Old Testament depiction of God's people, Israel. The prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah chapter 5 and verse 7, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. The vineyard represented Israel. The prophet Isaiah would go on to proclaim how the Lord had sought fruit like justice from the Israelites, but did not get the fruit that he was seeking. God is the owner of the vineyard, which represents Israel. And so the owner of the vineyard um, lets it out to tenants, and the owner goes into a far country. The tenants represent the leaders of Israel throughout history. Those gathered around Jesus as he's telling this parable again. They're the chief priests, they're the scribes, they're the elders of the Jews, along with other people. And as Jesus is telling this parable, I think don't expect they understood it yet, but it was representative of them along with the other Jewish leaders throughout the history of the nation. These who were responsible for bringing forth fruit for God, for holding forth the scripture, his word, for caring with the people, for caring for the people, leading the people into worship. But in his parable, the tenants do not own, honor the owner. They do not honor the Lord. And so these tenants are caring for the land. The owner's gone away. And when the time comes, he sends back servants. The owner's servants are the prophets. We read these words in verses 10 through 12. When the time came, he, that is the owner of the vineyard, representative of the Lord, I believe, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one they also wounded and cast out. 
In the history of Israel, the, the prophets were treated, for the most part, terribly. They were persecuted by the people to whom God had sent them. That's why when Jesus is teaching his Sermon on the Mount, he tells his followers, you're blessed when people persecute you because so did their fathers to the prophets. That is why Stephen, the first martyr of the early Christian church, when he's being stoned to death, says to the religious people, including the very high priest who was right there as Stephen was being stoned, he said, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your father did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered. Which of the prophets did your fathers, your ancestors, not persecute? The Apostle James would later write as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. And so these servants who are beaten, cast out of the vineyard by the tenants overseeing the land, they recall the prophets of the Old Testament. And then the owner of the vineyard says, after sending all of his servants, they've been beaten, they've been cast out, I'll send my son, my only son, they'll respect him. Christ is the son who would be killed. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard, the vineyard do to them? The religious leaders of Jesus' time would call for Jesus to be crucified just as the tenants rejected the owner by killing his son, so the religious leaders would reject God by killing Jesus. And so these scribes and elders, these chief priests, they're gathered around Jesus as he's telling this parable, and I think it's beginning to come, become clear to them. And Jesus concludes his parable by noting that the evil tenants will be destroyed Reminding that the owner will come back and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. And now those who'd been listening to Jesus tell the parable, the priest, the chief priest, and the elders, and the scribes, Jesus' parable, the, it had painted such a vivid picture in their minds of injustice that they shout out, surely not, <laughs> may it never be, something this terrible can't happen. But then Jesus, again appealing to Old Testament Scripture, the very same psalm that was fulfilled when the people praised him and said, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna, Psalm 18. That very psalm, Jesus will now point to it and note that he himself is the cornerstone. We read in Luke 20, verses 17 and 18, but he looked directly at them. He turns and looks now at the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders who said, surely not. May this never be. This could never happen. Such a terrible thing as you've just spoken of in your parable. He said, what then is this that is written? It's Psalm 118 again. Same psalm. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. 
Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Jesus is here claiming to be the cornerstone. That is the essential foundation stone upon which God's building, his holy temple, his church, his body, his people would be built. And again, you'll see Psalm 118 on the screen. It comes directly from this psalm, which reads, this is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you've answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected, the religious leaders, the tenants in the parable, the stone they rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. That's the passage to which Jesus looks when he says, what then is this that is written? Jesus is the cornerstone. And the very next verse in Luke chapter 20 reads like this. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had spoken this parable against them. But they feared the people, so now they understood. Now he's applying it to himself. They would have laid hands on him if they weren't so afraid of all the people gathered around who were listening intently to what Jesus said. So that's the parable of the tenants. And what I'd like to do now is to try to apply this parable to our own lives. How can we do what the religious leaders did not do? How can you and I honor Jesus as the cornerstone, the one ordained to be the foundation for that which God is building, his church, the body of Christ. How can you and I honor Jesus as the cornerstone? First of all, understand who he is. Shortly after the parable, Jesus would again be speaking, and he would make a remarkable claim. He would essentially be claiming to be God, to be Lord to be deity. And he would again use an Old Testament passage. He would use one of the Psalms. Let me ask you a question. What do you think is the Old Testament passage that is most often quoted in the New Testament? Anybody have any idea? If I were to guess, I would have guessed a verse like the one in Proverbs that says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Or a verse from the Old Testament says, the, the just or the righteous shall live by faith, because that's quoted a couple times in the New Testament. But I would have been wrong. I would have never guessed that Psalm 110 was the Old Testament passage most quoted and used in the New Testament. But it is. And Jesus is speaking of himself before these religious folks now, and he's going to make a remarkable claim about who he is. He said to them, how can they say that Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord, so how is he his son? The Jewish people, the Jewish leaders all knew 
that Christ, the Messiah, who was going to come, would, was supposed to be, would be, a descendant of King David. So Jesus says, all right, if the Christ, who is the Messiah, is David's son, a descendant of David, how is he also David's Lord? And the answer is that, yes, the Messiah, Christ Jesus, was a descendant of David, but yes, Christ Jesus was also David's Lord, who rules over David, because the Lord is God. It's interesting, as Jesus is now claiming to be God, claiming to be the Messiah, this passage in which he makes this claim is found in the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of Luke. It's found in the book of Acts. As you see next, Peter preaching in Acts chapter 2 uses the same verses. He says, David did not descend into heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. That's Psalm 110 verse 1, the passage most used in the New Testament to prove that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is God, that Jesus was raised from the dead, that Jesus, though he descended from David, is David's Lord. So let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. The first way to honor Jesus as the cornerstone is to understand who he was and who he is. Jesus was not just a good moral teacher. I just finished reading this past week a really great biography of Thomas Jefferson. It was written by Thomas Kidd, and it's, it's uh, called A Biography of Spirit and Flesh, and it had a lot of insight into the uh, spiritual life of this man who is credited with uh, authoring the Declaration of Independence. He knew Scripture well. He used a lot of Scripture. However, However, he put together his own version of the New Testament. You can go look it up online. The, the Jefferson Bible, the National Museum of American History has a copy. You can read it. And he took the moral teachings of Jesus, at least the ones he, he, he felt were proper, and put them together in an 84-page, paced-together uh, document. And with all respect to this uh, significant person in our nation's history, he did not accept the deity of Christ. He did not believe in the Trinity. He would align himself most closely probably with a Unitarian belief. And this has been the case for many people throughout history. They believe that Jesus was a great moral teacher. But Jesus, the great moral teacher, claimed to be more than a mere human moral teacher. He claimed to be more than a prophet. He claimed to be God. As the Christian philosopher and author C.S. Lewis said, <clears throat> essentially, it's inconsistent to say he was a good moral teacher if you don't also accept that he's Lord of all. He's Lord and he is God. A mere good moral teacher could not have given his life on the cross to redeem all people in all places of all time who would put their faith in him of all of their sins. Only God, the Son, the Son of God, could do that. Honoring Jesus as the cornerstone begins by understanding who he is. He's not, he was not a mere man. 
Secondly, receive what he's done for you. In the book of Acts, the, the apostle Peter is preaching. And here's what he says about Jesus, the cornerstone. Let it be known to all of you and all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus is the cornerstone. By his crucifixion and his resurrection, he has become the foundation of that which God is building. Do not say, I accept him as a good moral teacher, but not as God. If he were not God, how could his sacrifice atone for the sins of all people of all time, all who would ever put their faith in him? Jesus died because only God could bring us to God. That's why Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. And that's why Peter says here in verse 12, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Honor him by understanding who he is. Honor him by receiving what he's done for you. And then thirdly, by building your life upon his word. Later, Peter, in the letter that bears his name, the first one that bears his name, writes these words. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, or as some versions read, the pure milk of the word, that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men and we're back to the cornerstone, we're back to the parable, we're back to the son rejected by the tenants, the stone rejected by the chief priests and elders and scribes, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ for it stands in Scripture, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Scripture all fits together. From Psalm 118 to the book of 1 Peter chapter 2, Jesus is the cornerstone, and we honor him as such by understanding who he is, He's more than a mere prophet, more than a mere teacher. He's Lord of all. Who's, he's God become man, crucified and raised from the dead by receiving by faith for ourselves what he has done, receiving him as Lord, and then building your life upon his word. So in conclusion, two questions by way of personal application. Number one, am I living my life under the authority of Jesus as Lord? Or am I just taking some, some nice things he said that are meaningful to me and rejecting his lordship, rejecting his claim to deity, rejecting his right rule over my life? Am I living under the authority of Jesus as Lord? And then secondly, is my life being built upon 
the, the guidance of his word? Am I longing for that pure spiritual milk of the word about which Peter spoke, building my life upon his word? Let's pray about that together. Father, we pray for a deeper work of the Holy Spirit within us to embrace by faith who Jesus is, what he has done, to build our lives upon his words, upon your word. Father, I pray for any person here, any person watching, listening, any person among us who has not yet bowed his or her knee to the authority of Jesus Christ as the Son of God, God the Son, Savior and Lord, Redeemer from our sins, that you would bring that one today to say, yes, Lord Jesus, I repent of my sin and I turn to you as my Savior and my Lord. Lord, for the rest of us, would you guide us where we need direction, we need correction, we need to build our lives on your word. Would you strengthen us with power to faithfully honor you as we do that? And we pray in the name above all names, the name of Jesus. Amen.